When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. I don't think you can truly change for the better in a lasting, meaningful way unless it is driven by self-acceptance. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams? What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will find their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco. It's so great to be here with all of you. Joining me in just a moment is going to be Dr. Anna Scott. And Anna is a global uh, science advisor, and she's also the co-founder of Project Canary. And we're going to have a really wonderful conversation around the environment and global warming, climate change, and all the great data, I'll say, that Project Canary is collecting uh, to help with it. Also, at the end of the show, you'll hear from Sherry Morrison. Sherry is going to be joined by Helen Hamez, and Helen is the president of the Village Improvement Association here in Doylestown, just outside of Philadelphia. Uh, really interesting backstory um, that Sherry's going to be sharing. As always, if you'd like to learn more about the show, feel free to visit our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Um, now I'm very honored and excited to welcome to the show, Dr. Anna Scott. Anna, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Sue. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's really, really an honor to be amongst all the amazing women that you showcase on your show. Oh, thank you for saying that. And you're certainly one of them. Um, I always talk about how impressed I am by women really in STEM in general, um, but specifically the science field. I think it's just um, fascinating and um, it's not easy, the education. By the way, I don't typically do this. I don't like to um, copy, paste and read, but I'm going to read your educational background just to give the viewers a sense of um, the hard work you've put in. Um, you received a PhD from John Hopkins a bachelor's degree in mathematics from the University of Chicago, a master's in applied mathematics from the King Abdullah or Abdullah, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, University of Science and Technology, and a master in arts and science in art science from John Hopkins University. Did, yeah. I, did I leave anything out? 
<laughs> no, I, I think there. I think that's about it. Yeah, I, I stayed in school an, an awfully long time, um, and it takes a lot to train to be a scientist. But you know that that was what I really wanted to do and, and loved. So you know, it's it's a lot of work, and there's definitely some nights where I was studying, and I'd hear my roommates outside hanging out, and I'd think, man, what have I what, what have I chosen? But you know, looking back now, I'm, I'm glad I put in that work. Can you tell me what kind of student were you? Was it you know, very hard for you to be learning all of that information, lots of facts and figures and theories, or um, did it come easy for you? So I think it varied is the honest answer. I think, you know, certainly when I was younger, I, I was lucky in the sense that it did come easy to me. Um, but I think as time got, you know, went on, things got harder and I realized I hadn't really learned some of those learning skills. So I would oh. say, you know, I was leaning into things that I, I really liked and had some aptitude for, but it did mean that I missed out on some of those critical skills. So I would say if anyone's listening to this and think, oh, I'm not very good at this, therefore I shouldn't do it. I, I really don't think that's the case. Um, I think I had this like ability to, to start to do well at, at math at an early age. Um, and I thought, you know, I should see where I can go with this. Yeah. Well, in reading your background, I would say you certainly seem to have um, some acumen from both mom and dad. Your mom was a research physician. Is that right? And and your dad was a mathematician. So tell me, um, I'm curious, you know, how they raised you and whether you were kind of watching the, the work that they were doing that really was work that, you know, was helpful to humanity um, and you wanted to do that or did they talk to you about that and kind of encourage it? I think I was probably always surrounded by that type of stuff, you know, talking, hearing at the dinner table, what people were working on, having guests over. Um, my parents were both professors. And so they always brought, you know, their mentees um, around for, for dinner. And I remember hearing, you know, wonderful stories um, from people around the world about what they did and, and, and maybe why they were excited about it. Um, but I think looking back, you know, I think my parents were fairly hands off. You know, there was the we hear a lot about like stage parents for, you know, young actors and actresses. And I, I certainly didn't have that um, for, for math and science, um, but they, they definitely encouraged it, you know, and um, there were times I think when, uh, you know, I had two working parents and school would be off and they needed a babysitter and the babysitter's babysitting plans fell through and they'd bring me into the office. And my dad would say, okay, like we gotta give this girl something to do. So he'd have me organize his research papers or would like teach me, you know, some algorithm. And then I would, you know, spend hours on the blackboard, like testing it out. Um, wow. I think that's so cool. I think that's so great that they did that. I, I think at the time it probably wasn't the coolest thing. You know, I think um, one of my advisors joked that the fastest way to end a conversation at a party is to say that you're a mathematician. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's it's a useful skill. I'm, I'm certainly glad I did it. And, um, you know, even if it didn't make me the most popular kid in school, I think looking back, I think maybe people were just a little bit intimidated. You know what, that's, you shared with me that you, you know, being that kind of math wizard, um, young lady, you weren't popular. Did it bother you then? I think sometimes it was lonely, to be honest, you know, um, by the time I was in high school, I was, you know, in the same math class as people who were like two, three years older than me. And when you're 16, 17, you, you don't want to be like hanging out with a 14 year old, you know? And so 
you'd go into school and you'd like try and say like, hey, how are you doing? And, and probably also the 17 year olds were probably a little bit more socially advanced than like little 14 year old me. Um, but that was really isolating, I think, in, in sort of those middle school to high school years. Um, but as I got older, you know, I met other women who had other similar interests in, in math and science. Um, and so, you know, it, it changed. And you know what? It's so interesting to me because it it's cooler today, I would say, I uh, right, <laughs> to be involved in anything in the STEM field because we're talking about it and we're trying to promote it and, and support girls that have those interests. So I would say it's or uh, actually I should ask you that. Do you think that is the case um, that young women can really be more proud and, and brag about having those interests than they did some years ago? I certainly hope so. You know, I I think that um, it's certainly something that people will say, wow, like that's that's really cool. And I'm like, where were you like 10, 15 years ago? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I do talk with with young women to, you know, try and give it advice. And I, I sense that the young women I talk to for whatever reason are more, um, you know, curious and um, confident in those mm -hmm. STEM interest than I was, um, that may or may not make me an outlier. But if there are people out there watching, like, yeah, it's totally cool. And you're really cool. <laughs> um, you also moved around quite a bit. And I'm, I'm curious if that to you as a young kid was kind of exciting and adventurous or was it difficult? Because, you know, you have that starting over again and again. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, it's exciting to go to a new place. I was born in Houston. Um, I moved to Chicago kind of for about the middle school years. And I went to high school out in the suburbs of Seattle. And those are very different places. You know, the I lived in the city yeah. in Chicago and Houston's this like diverse but kind of suburban place. Um, and then in, in the suburbs of, of Seattle, it's like you live in a rainforest. Um, so it's fantastic. It was fantastic to get to see, you know, how, how sort of different people lived. Um, but I think it also is can be difficult trying to break into a, a new community. I think looking back now, those are skills that I, like it, it developed a skill set, quite honestly, um, that I use now in, in business when, you know, you try and as an entrepreneur break into a new field and, you know, you have to get to know people and you have to learn what the norms are. And, and they're always different. Right. Like whatever it is, they're always different. Um, and so, you know, I think in looking back, it, it was not always the easiest, um, but uh, going forwards, that was that was really a skill set that I was developing. And tell me a little bit about what it was like. You you spent some time in the south side of Chicago and you really got to see firsthand the disparity there, you know, um, economically. What did it what did it reveal to you? What kind of impact did it have on you? I think what it showed pretty plainly and, you know, I think kids see the world plainer than anyone else is that there, there are big problems in this world. And there are people who step up and try and solve those. And there's a lot of heck of a lot of people who, who don't. So, you know, walking to school or walking around the neighborhood or, you know, say going to church and hearing about that somebody's grandson got, you know, shot by the police because they thought he had a handgun. We had a cell phone. Like, I, I think those types of experiences show you that, you know, there's there's people experience the world differently depending on the color of their skin, how much money they have, whether they're an immigrant or not. And it really showed me that there are these big problems in the world that are really worthy of tackling. And there's a lot of people who are really excited about tackling those problems. There's a lot of people who, you know, don't really want to engage with those problems. And it made me know that I wanted to be in the camp of the people who are engaging with those big problems. 
So you did, you recognize that at that young age, you know, I want to do something that's going to, you know, um, contribute to this issue, which is a major, major problem. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I just, I think as a young child, it was, it was like so flummoxing. It was like absolutely confusing to me that, you know, we had bad things going on in the world and that people weren't fixing them. And I was like, what? Like, I'm a kid. I can see this. You know, why aren't people solving X, Y, Z? And it, you know, wasn't totally clear to me, like, you know, that I was going to go after like education or, you know, like infrastructure, whatever it was. But the idea was that there are problems and somebody's got to kind of step up. I didn't know how to do that. I was just, you know, wondering why the adults weren't. Yeah, well, that's a good question. And, you know, not to really get into politics, but I think you've had an opportunity to work with various industries, people in in powerful positions. And I I would love to know what your view is on why um, politicians go, I would say, into politics to try to make a difference. And then they have these positions of power and sometimes they do the right thing and sometimes they don't. Oh my gosh. So I wish I knew that answer. Like I I really do. Um, I haven't, you know, totally figured it out yet. I've all I've kind of seen is that the wheels of government work pretty slowly. Everyone, you know, the older you get, the more responsibilities you have outside of work. And, and I understand it. Everyone's trying to just, you know, kind of get, get through the day. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we've certainly seen a big change, you know, in, in my field in that we've gone from people not really understanding that our world is warming, our climate is changing, to starting to accept that um, and kind of go through, you know, almost the five stages of grief to get to the point where they're they're willing and ready to act. That brings me to my next question, actually. You've, you've done work in places uh, like Alabama, Kenya, Maryland. So I was wondering what what do you notice is a difference between different places geographically where people are focused on um, what needs to be done around the environment, climate change, global warming, um, and those that are maybe still skeptical? Is there any kind of commonality geographically? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think I would, would draw the line, not even geographically, but it's wholly dependent on you know, a lot of the the standard practices you have, like change is hard. So if you're in an area that's really, you know, I live in Texas, we have a lot of air conditioning, our cities rely on a lot of car transport. And that means that we need, you know, we consume a lot of gas to, to fuel our cars and a lot of air conditioning to, to, to cool off our houses. Um, and that's really different than places where, you know, you, you don't rely on those things. Um, and so what that means is that if you're going to change, you're going to have to change those businesses, you're going to have to change your infrastructure and, and that starts to be a large and, and complex problem. It's, you know, it's a, it's what I believe is a readily solvable problem, but that doesn't mean it's, it's an easy problem to solve. Yeah, I agree. Um, listen, we're going to go into our first break. When we come back, I'd love to hear the founding story behind Project Canary. People are probably wondering about the name. And then we'll talk more about what you're doing. Stay with us. If you're listening on 1210, you'll hear from our watch team. And we'll be right back with Dr. Anna Scott. Now the women to watch. Finance Watch. Finance Watch. At Penn Community Bank, we're committed to giving small business owners the tools and resources to help them succeed financially. As women, we're no stranger to managing it all. A household, children, relationships, the list goes on and on. Owning a business and managing it among the responsibilities of personal life, it can get stressful. 
Whether your business is brand new or well-established, finances and money management may be one of the most overwhelming facets of running a business. To run a successful business, financial management is a responsibility that cannot be neglected. If you hire a finance expert to handle the money side of your business, it is just as important for you to understand these components of your business. We're here to tell you a few skills and responsibilities that you can take action on to master your business's financial health. It may seem like a lot, but we promise you these actions are steps towards eliminating stress. Get in the habit of regularly reading and understanding your key financial statements. This includes bank statements, invoices, income, payroll, and more. This will help you understand your business's performance and where to make adjustments if necessary. Even if you have an accountant, it's important to maintain your own bookkeeping. This is essentially an ongoing record of your business transactions. There's a number of online platforms that can be helpful in navigating this tedious but important task, so don't feel overwhelmed by having to do it all solo. Come tax season, you'll be thankful that you did. Just like your personal finances, your business needs a budget. Keep track of your cash flow, profits, and any debts to set your business up for success. Knowing how much money to spend, where to spend it, and when to spend it will improve the longevity and success of your business. As your business thrives, you may be looking to expand or finance on a big project. In order to do so, you need strong business credit. Demonstrate that your business is a good risk for lenders by paying debts on time, utilizing your business credit card, monitoring your business credit score, and keeping your business and your personal finances separate. Each of these actions will give you a snapshot of your business's financial health, allowing you to strategize, set goals, and identify opportunities. Improve your financial literacy and you and your business will reap the benefits. Penn Community Bank, here we are and here we grow. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Hi and welcome back to the show. You're watching Women to Watch. I'm Sue Rocco and this week I'm joined by Dr. Anna Scott. Anna is the co-founder of Project Canary, and she is an international science advisor. Um, I always love to hear founding stories. Can you talk about how um, your company came to be? Yeah. So first of all, Project Canary is uh, a data, a climate data analytics startup, if you will. We started in about uh, 2019 um, and we've grown pretty fast today. We have over 137 employees. Um, And what we really got our start focusing on was this idea of we needed more measurements in order to help solve the climate crisis. Um, So we got our start uh, by um, trying to solve this issue of methane emissions, primarily in the energy sector. So methane uh, is a a molecule. It's what makes up natural gas. So say if you have like a gas stove or maybe a gas water heater, um, you use natural gas to to fuel those uh, appliances. And methane is the molecule that's that's mostly in in that. Um, And the problem is that when that natural gas gets produced, um, a lot of times some of that methane, which is really volatile, which means it can boil off, gets leaked. Um, and the issue is that methane compared to other warming, um, warming gases like carbon dioxide, say, um, has a large ability to warm the, the, the planet and the climate, more so than carbon dioxide. So anywhere from like 50 to 84 times worse than carbon dioxide, depending on how um, you, you do some of the accounting. And so that means that, uh, you know, the more you leak, the more you warm the atmosphere and the less efficient your heating, um, your energy production, your cooking is. And so we sought out to put together um, the type of sensing device that we could put directly on site 
24-7 monitoring of those sites and alert people when we detected leaks. And that would allow people to fix those leaks faster um, and reduce the amount of, of emissions. And so our name, Project Canary, alludes to the canaries in the coal mine that used to do this job. Um, we now have digital canaries, so we don't use actual birds. We, we have an actual um, hardware product that we put together uh, that actually sits on sites and, and does that monitoring and it doesn't chirp. It sends out actual alerts um, electronically to, to our providers. And since then, we've, we've grown to have more comprehensive services. So we have um, a, an environmental assessment that looks at you know, a couple hundred different data points, so not, not just methane. But the original idea was to have a digital canopy that would kind of serve as the canary in the coal mine 2.0. Okay. So tell me, what, what do you say to kind of the, the naysayers that say that the planet and the earth is much more, um, I'm not sure what word I'm looking for, but it really can and, and will take care of itself. And the methane and the gases that are um, warming are, there's just not enough for it to make a difference. Yeah, so what's so interesting about a gas like methane is that there, in fact, is enough to make a difference. And, and we know that because we, we measure it. So governments have been doing measurements on this for the past several decades. And, and we know that the amount of gases like methane in the atmosphere are increasing really, really significantly. Now, to you know, there's, I think, two points when somebody asks a question like that. And, and the second part is, you know, will we survive without this? And, and the answer is the planet will always survive. Um, the question is, what type of planet do you want to live on? What type of planet do you want to leave for your children? And so, you know, a lot of times I'll point to planets like, say, Venus, that have a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's still a planet. It's still there. Um, but the ground temperature on Venus is like, uh, you know, over uh, 100 degrees Celsius. I, I don't think I would like to live on the surface of, of that planet personally. Right. That's a great answer. I mean, I think it's it's because people, again, in reading headlines, there's is it just creates all kinds of of worry and fear for people. Um, so I think it's really important that you share in in a way that people can understand why the work is necessary, but at the same time, you know, um, the truth and the facts about the planet and how it affects us. Um, one of our listeners, we got a couple questions. Um, actually, the, the woman that Sherry mentioned to you that, that knows you and your work um, asked a question about, you know, climate change and the extreme weather events that we're seeing. And I do think they're different from years ago. What is that connection? Yeah, so we know that as our planet warms, extreme events like heat waves, hurricanes, flooding, will become more and more likely and will also become more and more severe. So that means the heat waves will get hotter. It means the, you know, even the cold snaps will get colder. Um, the hurricanes, we expect that to get more intense and, and likewise for flooding. And, and that's actually, I think, one answer that I probably left out of your last question, which is that I think nowadays people are recognizing that we're seeing more and more extreme weather, uh, whether that's because they're looking at their energy bills, whether that's because, you know, the gardening times are changing or the planting times are changing. Um, and so there's a really strong connection that we're all going to see locally. And so, you know, as the last date of frost gets later or, you know, those hot days. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply days get, you know, stretch on later into the season. I think that's something that we're all going to be feeling on a personal level. You know, is that necessarily going to be the end of the world for most people? Maybe not, but it's enough to start to affect people in our society who maybe are going to be the most vulnerable. So whether that's elderly people who can't appropriately cool their homes, whether that's folks who are in flood prone areas who, you know, can't afford to live in a higher up neighborhood, we're starting to see those types of impacts. But more importantly, the economic, well, maybe not more importantly, but also the economic costs and the economic toll. And that's going to be paid by everybody, regardless of where you live unfortunately. You know, we're outside of, we're in Philadelphia. And I can tell you, we had a massive hurricane here. I don't know if it was last year or the year before. And we never had that before. So you can't deny what we're seeing, the things that are happening that have not happened before to that level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in in the Northeast, you know, we're expecting to see a combination of different weather events that are starting to get more and more severe that we are, you know, we we know we're less likely before. And so a lot of people refer to like a 500 year event, a 100 year event, maybe thinking about, you know, the type of weather that you'd see once in every 500 years is starting to get more and more common um, to the point where, you know, we're seeing events that are 100 year events that we're starting to see, you know, every decade and, and starting to see some events. We're breaking records year after year. Yeah. You know, you have the opportunity to work with organizations like NASA and Red Cross and World Bank. Can, is there anything that you've learned um, that has surprised you? I think it surprised me how many people uh, care <laughs> and are, are trying to solve some of these uh, some of these issues across a really diverse array of of civil society groups. You know, from businesses to uh, the public sector. Um, you know, I'm I people come up and and talk to me a lot about these types of issues. And I'm always pleasantly surprised nowadays for people who tell me, oh, you know, my company just hired um, uh, a vice president of sustainability and they are reporting directly to the CEO. And, And that's the type of thing that I think you know, we used to never see happening. So I'm really encouraged and, and pleasantly surprised by the type of interest that's, that's you know, that's happening. I think 10, 15 years ago, um, we didn't see this type of, of, of interest um, in everyone, you know, rolling up their sleeves and solving the problem. And so that's, that's really encouraging. Would you say, I, I kind of think that the younger generation, yours and, and even younger, um, are almost demanding it. You know, when when they're going and looking for work and they're interviewing with these companies, they're asking really pointed questions about social responsibility and sustainability. 
so that yeah. they almost have to to do it. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that's great. Um, I absolutely think that we're seeing this being driven by consumers, consumer behavior, but also labor. And, you know, I would say if you're a young person who's demanding that in the workplace, like, awesome, please keep that up, because I think it's really working. Um, you know, we see that not only with Project Canary's customers, but we also see that with the talent that, that we've hired at Project Canary, that people are really clamoring to work for a company that they think is, is making a difference. Um, I have another question here for you. This is uh, Susan McPherson is an author and an advisor. She was a past guest on our show, and she wanted me to ask you, how are you successfully communicating your very important work with audiences that can drive change? So I think it starts with always understanding who your audience is, for example, so, you know, I might speak a little bit differently to um, a certain customer segment that we have versus maybe, say, a podcast that's going to a more general audience or, um, you know, thinking, uh, talking to an expert, like, say, uh, a, you know, a government group or an industry group. Mm -hmm. And so it really starts with dialing in, you know, what does your audience think is important? What what are the things that that they hold dear, what are their values? Um, and then communicating, finding those lines of commonality, like what they find important. And so, you know, for the type of work that, that we've done specifically with, with Project Canary, you know, we tend to be working with companies who are already have some level of concern. Maybe that's coming from their customers. Maybe it's coming from their, their board. Maybe it's just coming from their employees who want to do good. Um, and so we start by aligning on sort of what are those things that they find important. Sometimes we find people who might not care about some of the same thing, same things that we care about, but might say, you know, want to, uh, you know, keep more product that they're producing um, in, in, in their pipes and sell it. And, and like, that's a great thing to connect on. So it's all about finding that one thing that, that matches up with something that people find important. Um, and it requires sitting down and talking because you, you might be surprised that there are, in fact, things that somebody holds really dear to them that also are things that you hold, hold dear. And I think those are the important things to connect on. Um, Anna, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to talk about your field and your work and, and your story. I think it's really inspirational that you ignored the uh, that popular crowd. <laughs> Now they look at you and they think, wow, she's so impressive. Well, thank you, Sue. That's really kind of you. Thanks so much for letting me um, share my story. Terrific. Uh, stay with us. We're going to go into a break. And when we come back, Sherry Morrison will be here with Helen Hames. And Helen is the president of Village Improvement Association here in Doylestown, outside of Philadelphia. We'll be right back. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. Welcome to the lifestyle segment of Women to Watch. I'm Sherry Morrison. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Helen Hammes, president of the Village Improvement Association of Doylestown and also known as the VIA. Welcome to the show, Helen. Thank you, Sherry. It's always a pleasure to talk about the VIA and our upcoming fundraiser, Bucks County Designer House. Great. Well, we can't wait to hear about it. The VIA was founded in 1895 by 14 accomplished women, and in 1923, they founded the first Doylestown Emergency Hospital. Next year, they will be celebrating the centennial anniversary of the Doylestown Hospital. But before we get too wrapped up in the history, I would like to fast forward to present day. Helen mentioned the Bucks County Designer House, which is the linchpin to the VIA, 
and is going to start on September 18th and run through October 16th. Helen, could you please tell us a little bit about the designer house? Yes, this is going to be our 47th. We started in 1971, but didn't have one every year. And it became our major fundraiser. Uh, it replaced the door-to-door -door campaign with our little blue cotton bags, um, with, uh, getting subscriptions every year. But one of our members was in California and happened to see what was called a showcase house and thought it was a great idea. And so it started very modest, uh, just some uh, house, local house right in town. They closed off the street for a week or so. And, uh, but then it grew into um, having an empty house party, uh, having a preview gala, which we're going to be having next Saturday night. And um, of course, the biggest issue each year is finding a Bucks County farmhouse. After 47 years, you can imagine we might be running out of them. <laughs> but we actually, I mean, we've been so blessed. We actually have gotten, um, been very lucky. Some years we haven't actually signed a contract until very late in the game. But the committee, which is our largest committee in the organization, uh, just has such a template in its structure that we just start contacting designers, landscapers, start putting our marketing program together, our corporate sponsors, start drafting letters and uh, advertisements, and then they'll announce, oh, we have a house. So then we say, okay, wonderful. <laughs> and then also we uh, work with the hospital because each year they have priority projects. And so this year we've chosen interventional radiology. Several years ago, we made a million-dollar five-year pledge to upgrade the maternity unit, and uh, we made it. We actually made it. It was um, a lot of pressure on the committee and on the uh, designer house chairperson. But um, every year we've been able to do something to help the hospital, even in 2020 when we had to shut down. We got our empty house party in in February. <laughs> and, you know, two weeks later, 15 days to stop the spread uh, turned into longer than that. And um, so, unfortunately, we we had to shut it down that year. But last year we actually um, were able to have one again and uh, we did timed entry following all of the CDC protocols. And that was something that our visitors have really enjoyed now because there would be some days, I guess, you know, you wake up, oh, it's a sunny day. Hey, let's go to see the, the designer house today. And you could have it so jam packed. But now where we have the time entry, all of our visitors really have the opportunity to enjoy each room, to really see everything that the designers um, have uh, put in their heart and soul into it. And so it's really um, become quite a tradition. We have folks from the tri-state area. A couple of years ago, I met a very lovely woman, and she said she had been to every single house since 1971. So we do have very loyal fans. Yeah. Now, about how many people do you take through the house each year? We have close to 5,000. We've had some years or even as many as six, but where we run for the whole month, uh, it'll be October or September 
um, what did we say, 18th through October 16th this year. Um, we did have to switch it from the spring to the fall this year because once we started talking to our designers last fall, they said already with the supply chain issues, they would never be able to have any, have much of their product in by May. So that was a major decision. So this is a real experiment for us. It's the first time we've had a fall open house, um, designer house. So, so far ticket sales are going very well. And uh, a lot of our um, guests who have come to preview galas in past years uh, have signed up. So after two years, we have our new gala. And so everyone's looking forward to a, a really successful house and hopefully as much as we can to donate to um, interventional radiology and also to our mission-funded committees. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, and I can't imagine you ever run out of beautiful homes in Bucks County. Uh, I lived in a farmhouse up there for many years, and I know that it was surrounded by fabulous old stone farms and barns and buildings. Um, so I know you'll do well. You have many years to go. Um, I will cover the website for tickets at the end of this segment. Um, a little bit about the BIA. The current mission of the BIA is to enhance the health and welfare of Central Bucks County and the surrounding communities. It hasn't changed a lot since its inception um, in 1895, but the contribution to the community has grown significantly. Uh, and as I mentioned, it started in 1895 by these well-known women in Doylestown community. Hard to believe it was composed of dusty, dirty streets and spitting. Um, but most remarkable is the BIA and the Doylestown Hospital are all still governed by this woman's organization. That's 127 years the BIA has provided service to the greater Doylestown community, governing the only woman-founded and operated modern hospital now with 232 beds, 435 treating physicians. That's amazing. Helen, can you give us a little bit more background and overview of how this all started and how much it's grown? Well, we're very fortunate because we have all of the minutes of the BIA journals dating from 1895. And for those of us who can still read cursive, they're <laughs> very, they are gorgeous penmanship, but um, very, very interesting. And uh, we did have them all digitized a few years ago because we did not want to lose them. Um, but the women did start out because of the dusty streets, uh, a lot of respiratory illnesses with the children and, and adults. And they did go to the town fathers and they they felt they had a solution. We'd just like to have some water sprinkled on the streets to keep the dust down, especially in the summer. And the town fathers were not very receptive and just said, um, no, we don't need to do that. And we're they didn't have a vote. They couldn't use that as leverage to say, well, we're going to vote you out next time. They just decided they raised some money and they went and hired a farmer with a water truck. And then there were residents who would subscribe to it. And he would go with the water wagon in front of the houses to keep tamp down the dust. Um, also, from what we understand, there were a lot of oyster shells and clam shells out in well, anyone at the shore knows <laughs> that that can be quite a, a nice odor to come in through your windows along with the dust. So um, they started a, a committee for cleaning up, cleaning up the streets. 
and we had a good chuckle when we were talking before about the spittoons. They were placed in um, key areas like the courthouse and the outside the post office. Um, and then they also had a charity committee um, helping the, um, <clears throat> the needy. Uh, there is still an almshouse that is down on almshouse road off, off of 611 that they uh, would help out families there. But with the hospital, they, they started realizing um, as they went into the next decade, uh, Abington had a hospital open in 1913. And in 1907, the BIA did start a hospital fund and had all of $90 in it, which I guess if we fast forward inflation, that, you know, is probably a nice amount of money at that time. But um, they started thinking that maybe Doylestown should think about getting a hospital. Um, they did move into um, more direct health care by hiring a visiting nurse. And that first one was hired in 1916. Um, but then with the drums of war with World War One, she left to join the Army Nurse Corps. And then we hired another one in 1917. She also left to join the Army Nurse Corps. So then we finally ended up with Norma Muncy, and she was our visiting nurse who stayed the longest. And she joined just in time to deal with the Spanish flu. And so she and a couple of the Red Cross nurses who were also working in town um, dealt with a lot of, uh, a lot of the Spanish flu uh, victims. And then by 1923, there was enough money saved that they actually bought a house and that became our first hospital. It was eight bed. It was an emergency and maternity hospital. And the women themselves did all the cooking. Uh, they had a sewing committee. They did the bed linens, the gowns. And these were women who were doctors and lawyers' wives that people say you probably had someone at home doing this type of work for them. But this is what they wanted to do, and that's how we ended up having our first hospital here in Doylestown. Well, that's great. I, I know um, you've also purchased or started Pine Run, um, which is an adult community with um, extended care. There's uh, Lakeview, another community. You have uh, started different um, committees that deal with uh, certain problems that are obvious to the community, like the uh, opioid crisis. We have a um, now a center for the neonatal unit NAS program. Right. Um, so you continue to grow and have these programs, children's programs, um, just so many, 300 women that are involved with different committees to oversee all of these different events and entities. It's, it's amazing how much you've grown there's so much involved with the program. And I, again, I find it amazing that it's continued to be woman run and um, you do such a good job. I mean, I know you're going out and doing, you're the ones that do the searches for the people who run the hospital. And then in turn, uh, once that's voted on, they, they take over the hospital or the different organizations and oversee them. So um, yes, it's a great program. Um, we're, we're running close on time here. I'm sorry. There's so much to talk about. Um, I, I do want to ask everybody if you have an opportunity to go out and visit the Doylestown or the Bucks County Designer House. 
For more information, you can go to www.buckscountydesignerhouse.org. Um, for more about the VIA, if you want to learn, contribute, um, volunteer, help see, or go to different events, see what's coming up on the horizon, go to VIA-Doylestown.org. Um, Helen, thank you so much for joining us today and for shedding some light on this wonderful organization and how it all came about. I hope everybody will want to learn more and, and check you out. Thank you. And we're looking forward to seeing everyone at our designer house in the next few weeks. I'll be there. Okay. <laughs> Please join me next week when we meet Ellen Warner, author and photojournalist of the second half, 40 Women Reveal Their Life After 50. Sue will be right back out, right back to close out the show. Keep living your dreams, ladies. Now the Women to Watch, Military Watch. Hi, I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military and Veteran Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. This Thursday, September 15th, begins National Hispanic Heritage Month, where we celebrate the culture and contributions of Hispanic Americans. This year, the Department of Defense theme for this is UNIDOS, Inclusivity for a Stronger Nation. UNIDOS means unity or connected. Hispanics have a long and honorable history serving in our nation's armed forces, with some accounts dating back to the Revolutionary War. Today, Hispanics are the fastest growing population in the Department of Defense, comprising 17% of active duty service members. One of these service members was highlighted in a recent DOD memo. It reads, We are mindful of individuals like Air Force Major General Mark H. Sassville, the 12th Vice Chief of the National Guard Bureau. As a lieutenant colonel, he demonstrated exceptional courage and leadership when terrorists attacked the United States on September 11, 2001. Major General Sassville was one of the F-16 fighter pilots activated to find and alleviate the enemy's aerial threat against our country. Major General Sassville and hundreds of thousands of other Hispanics have bravely faced our nation's adversaries and sacrificed to protect the rights and freedoms we enjoy. I look forward to celebrating the richness and vibrancy the Hispanic heritage brings to our community and our country. Hi, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Tone, to Sherry for her incredible Lifestyle Watch segments, and to all of our Watch Team members and sponsors. Next week, stay tuned for my interview with Mickey Hogue. Mickey is the chair and co-founder of an annual fundraiser um, in partnership with the Alzheimer's Association. She's doing great work after losing both her parents to Alzheimer's. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. 
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.